Hi everyone, and welcome to SedsCast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and joining me today as co-host is Rupal Nigam. We have a very special guest joining us today. Peter Diamandis is a co-founder of SEDS and has gone on to create some of the most exciting space organizations in the world. October 30th, 2020 marks the 40th anniversary of the first SEDS meeting, an event Peter organized at MIT back in 1980. In today's conversation with Peter, we discuss the formation of SEDS and how the organization helped him to found his subsequent ventures. Welcome to SEDScast, episode 25 with Peter Diamandis. Welcome to SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me today as co-host is Rupal Nigam. Rupal, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Awesome. Good to hear it. Well, joining us today is someone very special for SEDS as one of the co-founders, Peter Diamandis. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, and I love SED, so it's a chance to really plug back in a little bit and sort of share history, enthusiasm, what I'm excited about. Uh, you know, my mission is inspire and guide entrepreneurs, especially space entrepreneurs, so let's jump. Awesome. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. And uh, I think people, some people know about the history of SEDS, others don't. So we may want to start off with that. Can you talk a little bit about how you first came to found SEDS? Yeah, happily. So uh, I was at MIT. I was a sophomore. Uh, when I got there, I looked around because I've been interested in space since my childhood. Like I grew up in the 60s. Apollo was going on. It showed us this amazing capability of the human race. And then Star Trek had just launched. And so Apollo showed us what was possible today. And that scientific documentary called Star Trek showed us where we were going. And those two combinations sort of lit my heart on fire. And I just assumed, hey, amazing. I'm going to be on Mars soon. I'm going to be walking on the moon. And like none of that stuff actually materialized. It was so much slower. And I was so disappointed, so disenchanted. I get to MIT and I like, there must be a space organization here I can start or I can join. And there wasn't. And I was kind of blown away by that. And so I said, I think I'll start a space group. And I remember I was at a fraternity, Theta Delta Chi, TDC at MIT. And, um, and I was like trying to come up with a name. And I remember it was like, uh, you know, Student Space Society, Space Cadets at MIT, you know, it had like 20 names. And I was like brainstorming everybody. Um, and I ended up with Students for the Exploration and Development of Space as a name, and it worked. And back then, you know, this is 1980, okay, like ancient history. I mean, like 40 years ago, it's hard to believe SEDS is that old. Uh, back then, I would, you know, I'd use stencils. There was no, like, no personal computers, no personal printers, none of that stuff. I would use stencils, and I would stencil out on a piece of paper you know, join a student space society, SEDS, um, meet in the student center, you know, room so-and-so if you're interested at this time. And I went and postered the school, which is what you would do. You would go and you'd like print like, you know, at the copy shop, uh, you'd print, you know, 200 copies of this eight and a half by 11 poster. And I'd like put it up like at every dorm and every hallway, every place. And so comes this evening, um, this is fall of 1980 and I'm like, okay, uh, let's see if anybody's going to show up. And I had no idea. I mean, I had like two of my fraternity brothers who said they'd show up and all of a sudden there's a room full of like 40 
students at this founding meeting of, of SEDS. And uh, I'm in front of the room talking about why there should be a student space organization and, you know, the space shuttle is supposed to launch next year. And is it really going to do this and that? And, uh, and it was amazing. Um, a guy who is incredible, uh, amazing scientist and, uh, and revolutionary guy named uh, Eric Drexler, who wrote Engines of Creation and Nanotechnology, showed up at that meeting and a number of other, um, a number of other uh uh, members of the L5 Society, which was another space organization, showed up and said, well, maybe this should be a student chapter of the L5. I said, no, I, I really want a organization, and this was the original ethos that still is here, uh, of students run by students for students. I don't want this to be a chapter of some other organization. You know, Students have their own, you know, it's their future. They should be able to, to, to lead and grow and, and Anyway, I remember walking out of that meeting and it was a clear night sky. And I remember saying, wow, this could really do something. This could really be something. There could be chapters at other schools. And I wrote um, a couple of friends of mine, uh, Scott Sharfman, who was at Princeton, uh, and Rich Sorkin, who was at Yale, uh, and said, hey, do you, I just started the space group. Do you want to start a chapter at Princeton and Yale? And they said, sure. And then uh, and then what happened next was I wrote letters to the editor of three magazines, Omni Magazine, which I don't know if you even know what Omni Magazine is today. It, it was a big science science fiction magazine back then. It was a big deal. Uh, and, uh, and Astronomy Magazine and Analog. And the letter got printed... Um, the letter got printed in all three and it said uh we students have organized a group called seds uh, uh because the government is mortgaging our future because they had can't the government had canceled nasa had canceled a mission to Halley's comet and solar power satellite research and we were kind of pissed about that i was very naive about some of this stuff back then and uh and if you're interested start a chapter at your university and uh, we got hundreds of letters from around the world of people wanting to start SEDS chapters. And that was the founding. I met uh, one of those letters came from a gentleman by the name of Bob Richards, uh, who would become the, you know, my one of my co-founders and, and the head of SEDS International. Another came from uh, Todd Hawley uh, at GW, who became sort of the third Bob, Todd, and I became the closest of friends, went on from there to start Space Generation Foundation at International Space University, and had our first conference at GW in, in July of 1982, where all the chapters, and this is like pre-internet, guys, so it's like we're communicating with chapters by mail, by post office. It was crazy. But anyway, that was the founding of SEDS, and so proud it's still, still alive and doing well. You know, Jeff Bezos went on, it took over as uh, chapter president at Princeton and, and a lot of amazing people have come through SEDS. Yeah, that's awesome to think about. And, you know, we are coming up on 40 years, I guess, in a couple of weeks here. I think that's when we're planning on releasing this. So amazing. Maybe it will be a little bit of a 40th anniversary thing. Rupal, you had a question related to that, right? Yeah. So now that that 40 year anniversary is coming up, how do you feel about where SEDS is now? So first of all, I'm super proud that SEDS is alive and kicking, right? It's like, it's it's beautiful because SEDS never got a large endowment, never had became institutionalized. Chapters live and die. 
and it's this is a training ground. I can tell. I want to just say something to everyone listening here. You know, everything I've ever done in business. I'm on my 23rd or 24th company right now, and I've raised you know billions of dollars of capital for all these companies over the years. Uh, I I learned these. I didn't go to business school. I learned these skills at SEDS. I learned how to how to lead, how to pitch my idea, how to raise money, how to um, run an uh, an event, how to run an organization. All those skills came from being a leader in the SEDS organization. And you know, at during the day, I would be learning molecular genetics or aerospace engineering at MIT, where I was in school. But it was on nights and weekends that most everything I use today really got learned and I credit SEDS um, for that. So if you're passionate about space, if you're passionate about being a leader, being a creator, being an entrepreneur, SEDS is a great training ground for you. So you're talking about doing this stenciling and putting posters up all over campus. What do you think gave you the drive to do that in the first place? Like what motivates you to put in that amount of work? So I'll tell you something that was amazing. It's a great question, um, Owen. Um, you know, the fact that that first meeting and that SEDS succeeded as one of my first entrepreneurial efforts, you could be as an entrepreneur as a non, in a nonprofit or a for-profit or a chapter. It was that success that got me addicted to having my ideas um, go from idea to materialization. And I was nervous. I mean, you know, I was driven. I felt, I felt like I felt my heart. And I talk about this through my abundance digital community. Um, I talk about uh, the fact that you really need to find your passion. And it was my passion. And the, there was a disconnect between what I imagined would be the future in space, right? In my, through my teens and, you know, into my, you know, college and where, where we were. It didn't match. It didn't it didn't match what I knew could be possible where we were, and I wanted a vehicle with which to have an impact. And SEDS became that vehicle, uh, and I didn't know it was going to work, but I was passionate about this idea, and I was going to give it a try. I wanted to meet. It's all about community at the end. It's all about who you hang out with and the conversations you have and the skills you bring to the table. So I wanted a community of fellow students who are passionate about opening up the space frontier. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned ISU and I, I wanna ask a question because actually a couple of the other podcast guests we've had on have gone through ISU. What made you wanna found that organization? And also how were you able to do it at such a young age? Because you weren't that far out of college when you founded it, right? So. I wasn't, um, and it's uh, it's it's an important story. So I, you know, SEDS was an amazing experience, and my senior year in college at MIT, um, I got offered an opportunity along with Todd Hawley and Bob Richards to go to um, Unispace. And Unispace was United Nations Conference for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And we went there, and this is uh, August of 1982. I'm, going, I'm a junior, about to become a senior. Uh, and 
I'm in Vienna, Austria, you know, the first time in Europe alone, wide eyed, looking around and all these amazing space leaders and heads of space agencies and so forth. And uh, and we got a chance to meet Arthur C. Clarke. And Arthur C. Clarke, uh, the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, 2010, a number of amazing books, talked about we went to dinner with him and talked about that when he was in his 30s and 40s, um, there was, he knew, this is like in the, four, in the 1940s and 50s, post-World War II, that he knew all of the leaders around the world in space. It's like they were on talking and they dreamed about space and they dreamed about what was possible. And I, we said like, wow, that would be so cool to have a place that attracted all of the future leaders of space together. And uh, again, Todd, Bob and I came up with this idea of there should be a university that is multidisciplinary, uh, multinational, that attracts the top people in this, around the world who have a common passion and dream of space. And uh, we put that together really and recruited Arthur Clark to be our chancellor um, I ran the first summer program in 1988 at MIT. We had 104 students from 21 countries. Todd would go on to lead um, the institution for a number of years. And it's still, like I said, it's going strong. It's, uh, it's entering now, you know, it's 35th year or thereabouts, uh, 30th anniversary. But so super proud about both those institutions. Yeah. What do you think it is that makes these institutions last long? You said for SEDS, it was that it's always stayed kind of under student control. Is it, is there something else you think, or is that it? Yeah. So I think it, it's got to be the passion. It's got to be the drive. It's got, it's got to be, it's like if people have to love the community and, and when it starts dying off, if it starts dying off, they want, they love it so much that they want to revitalize it, right? If it isn't serving a real purpose, if it isn't really, if it's someone else doing a better job, then it doesn't have a right to exist. So it has to understand what is its niche and what is it doing? And is it true to its purpose? Um, so I think those are, those are important elements. Now, I, I hope, and I would like, uh, the organizations to do more. And I hope the more successful I am, the more I'll be able to continue to support SEDS and ISU financially. But um, but there's something important about it being sort of um, grassroots, so to speak, uh, you know, fighting for its uh, economics and uh, and really having to bring value every year versus a number of organizations that, you know, are endowed and sit there and, you know, just are existing without really thriving. So what are some of those future directions you see for these organizations? Well, listen, I think... Um, I think that what SEDS offers is a chance to really become a leader and to, uh, to really get involved. I'll use the term entrepreneurially, but that doesn't just refer to starting companies. It means entrepreneurially in your science and your, in your projects, in any areas that you desire. Um, ultimately I feel like, um, uh, it's becoming easier to be a space entrepreneur, 
right? Uh, the cost of launches plummeting, the cost of satellite manufacturing is plummeting, the cost of cameras and chipsets and all of these things where it used to be if you wanted to build a satellite, it was a decade long. And if you're doing it for your PhD, you were risking everything on it. Today, you know, uh, there's a dozen small launch vehicle companies and you can build a functioning satellite for 10K and, and, and get it launched for another, you know, tens of Ks. So it's, it's, and it's, it's changing and your ability to do science on, on systems in orbit is getting easier. So it's really, it's, it's permission to dream. And so I'd love SEDS to be impacting more students. I think this next decade is going to be an incredible decade for space. Uh, given the work that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and a dozen other amazing space entrepreneurs are doing, um, it's more exciting than ever before. It's 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 we're back to that vibrancy of the late '60s, which is exciting. Yeah, it certainly feels that way to us. And granted, we've only been around for five years, but even within the last five years, it seems the amount of action in space is picking up. So. I think we're all very excited about that. Another thing that was of personal interest to me was talking X Prize and hearing more about like what your rationale was for starting that in the first place and where it's come since then. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a great question, um, and let me tell that story in in brief. The uh, I here I am absolutely remaining passionate about space, but disenchanted again by how fast it's going. Uh, I'm now at MIT as a graduate student. I'm meeting lots of astronauts and uh, I'm at the manned vehicle lab. And I realized that my chance of becoming an astronaut is like one in a thousand, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, statistically it's one in a thousand. And, and I, I also realized that, you know, my idea of being an astronaut isn't like, getting selected if I were lucky enough and then flying once in a decade. No, no, I want to go every weekend. <laughs> I want to go as often as I can go. I want, like, you know, I want to be talking about, you know, space like people talk about scuba diving or mountain climbing. And I said, it's not going to happen with the space shuttle. At this point, the space shuttle is operating. It's not doing 50 flights a year. It's doing at best two, three, four flights a year. It's not you know, uh, you know, in $10 million a launch, it's a billion dollars a launch. And it's like, this is not going to happen. This is not going to work. And so it was like, how do we do this commercially? And I had just been given a copy of the spirit of St. Louis, uh, Charles Lindbergh's autobiography. I'm given it by, by a dear, dear friend, Greg Marinak, who's one of the early, uh, SEDS advisors and really, uh, you know, part of our, our founding team but he had been running the Space Studies Institute in Princeton. And I read that Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic in 1927 to win a $25,000 prize, that you know, uh, nine teams spent 400,000 going after it, and Lindbergh, the most unlikely person to win it, wins it. And I'm like, wow, that's it. I'm gonna create a prize for private space flight. I know without any question that a private company can do this carry people into space and do it cheaper than anybody else. And can't, we can start a commercial space flight industry. Um, uh, I didn't have $10 million. I was raising money, $25,000 at a time. And again, one of the things I learned at SEDS, 
was how to raise money, how to really, you know, and, and money is, by the way, it's not about money for the sake of money. Money is a form of energy. And when someone gives you money as an investment or a donation, it is them believing in you and transferring a, uh, a unit of energy to you that then you can expend to go and make something else happen. That's the way I think about it. And your ability to provide uh, with passion and confidence and a clear plan of action that uh, gets people to say, yes, I want to back you. I believe in you. I believe in what your mission is. I believe in what you want to do with this amount of money slash energy. I'm going to give it to you and good luck. That's a skill that I learned at SEDS, hands down. Lots of lessons there. And so I was able to raise uh, about half a million dollars towards the $10 million in May of 1996 under the arch in St. Louis. I blew all the money. I, I threw a massive public relations party. I decided I was going to tell the world about this thing. Uh, and I recruited the head of NASA to be on stage with me, the head of the FAA, not one astronaut, but 20 astronauts, the Lindbergh family, Burt Rutan. I got everybody there and we announced this $10 million prize. Did I have the money? No. Did I have any teams? No. But I wanted to give birth to this idea, what I call above the line of super credibility. And we had front page around the world and I then had to go raise 10 million bucks. And it was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. You have to understand, I was so absolutely sure who would want to pay for this until after the prize was won. All I have to do is make the commitment for $10 million and pay the check after it's won. And I went and I pitched everybody, everybody, from Paul Allen to Richard Branson to Jeff Bezos to – I even pitched Elon in those days. I pitched 150 people and it was no, 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 no for all different kinds of reasons. Like, you know, why isn't NASA doing this? Can anyone really pull it off? Isn't someone going to die trying? No, I don't want to spend my money that way. And it was disenchanting. And the only thing that led to its ultimate success was I believed in it so much, I refused to give up. And so for everybody listening, you know, what is your passion? What is your purpose? What do you believe in so much that when the world tells you no, you say bullshit, absolutely yes, and I'm going to go and make it happen, right? What do you believe in so much? What is your massively transformative purpose that inspires you uh, to wake up in the morning and keep going at night and that that is like, I knew it was possible. And I was, and I believe me, I was knocked down so many times. People were telling me you're wasting your time. And then finally I met an amazing woman, Anusha Ansari. She was born in Tehran around the same time I was, grew up looking at the stars that I looked at, grew up uh, with Star Trek as her passion. And uh, she had been extraordinarily successful. She had built a company called Telecom Technologies, sold for $1.3 billion. I read about her in, uh, it was like Forbes' wealthiest 40 women under 40 and her passion for space. And, and I was her first meeting after a, like a three month sabbatical in Hawaii. And they said, yes, the family. And, and then the prize was funded. There's a lot, there's a lot of story. There's a great book. Um, if you want to know my story and the early days of SEDS and ISU and, um, and XPRIZE, there's a book called How to Make a Spaceship um, by Julian Guthrie. 
and it's a it's an amazing book. It's a New York Times bestseller, and you'll learn a lot about me, my story, SEDS, SU, uh, ISU, uh, and X Prize there, <clears throat> and all the struggles. And um, and we're here having this conversation now because I didn't give up. So ultimately, for everyone listening, what do you know in your heart? What you are so passionate about that it wakes you up in the morning, keeps you going at night, and will allow you to to go after something with that level of passion. If you don't, it's your obligation during during school, college, graduate school, whatever it is, to find that. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that kind of speeds up to what we wanted to talk about student advice at some point. And we may as well just crank that out now. So you just said a lot right there about passion. What do you want to see from said students in terms of skills that they're building while they're in SEDS? We talked about passion. We talked about the struggle of like grinding out when it's a student org. Are there other skills you think people should be developing while they're in college? I think if you think about it, a lot of the stuff you're going to learn in college is going to be out of date by the time you graduate or you go to you go to school. I think school is about learning how to learn. It's about learning um, um, about how to communicate, how to make great friends, how to um, how to pitch your ideas, <clears throat> how to argue for your ideas. I mean, these are critically important skill sets, and <clears throat> they're skill sets that are um, that are going to last you for a long time. I think your job during college is to find out what you're passionate about, to find out uh, how to stand up on a stage and speak to your ideas, how to lead. Uh, you know, there are other uh, skills that will be useful, but I think these are generic skills, how to ask great questions. Uh, yes, you can learn about finite element analysis or, you know, how to, you know, how to create algorithms and, and specific techniques and technologies. But ultimately, uh, if you want to be a leader and SEDS to a large degree is about creating leaders in the space arena, you need to understand how to formulate your ideas clearly and how to present them with passion, uh, thinking around like zero principle, th- um, first principle thinking. Uh, those are things I think are, are really, are really important. And, you know, start a project. Um, and recruit people to be part of your team and learn how to fail gracefully and iterate and start again. Awesome. Yeah, that's something I think Rupal and I both appreciate about SEDS is it's so open-ended that we can create project teams and go after specific challenges, whether they're by NASA or something we want to do ourselves. And we have that freedom to start a project and go execute on something under the SEDS umbrella within our university, which is something... I really appreciate it. I think Ruble does as well. So I'm thinking we could spend a couple minutes, if you're okay with it, talking a little bit about COVAX. That's something I read up on the past week or two and was just interested to hear what you've been up to with it and what your goal is and, and what it's been like switching into that. I mean, I know you're a Harvard medical doctor, but. Yeah. So I, you know, I went to medical school a lot for two reasons. One, to make my, my parents happy because they were in the medical arena. Uh, and, uh, second, because when I was in graduate school, I, I looked at the statistics of astronaut selection and, uh, you were either a, a pilot, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a Navy air force pilot or the next highest group were medical doctors. Uh, 
So I was like rationalizing, uh, trying to get into the astronaut program. And then I let go of that dream and said, I'm going to do it privately. And that switched over to XPRIZE and, and, and such. Um, but uh, so I got my medical degree, but it's been of late that I've been focused on on medical related technologies, mostly longevity, age reversal. When I've been on the board of a company called uh, Vaccinity, and uh, which is a vaccine company that's developing vaccines against Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, hypercholesteremia, migraines. And in March, when COVID-19 was hitting hard, uh, the team said, you know, our science team had developed a vaccine against SARS-1, and we think we could start up a, we could, we could do something significant here. And so uh, uh, we had a huddle and uh, we said, let's do it. Let's create, let's go after creating a vaccine. And uh, we ended up, um, uh, we put together a separate company called COVAX, C-O-V-A-X-X, and raised, uh, you know, $20 million in pretty much a snap of a finger. And one of the things that becomes you know, uh, important for students to learn is, listen, your job right now, if you're fundraising for a project, it's not go raise 20 million bucks. It's, it's, can you raise a thousand bucks? Can you raise 5,000 bucks, right? Which is appropriate for the size of the project and where you are in life. But the tools and techniques that you, that you use for raising, uh, that money are the same tools and techniques that you use for raising 20 million bucks or a billion bucks. It's, it's telling the story. It's the confidence people have in you. It's the clarity of where you are and where you're going and what you're going to do with it. All of those things are the same skills. Uh, nothing's changed. And the lessons I learned when I was, you know, 20, 25 years old, the same lessons I'm still using today. But raised uh, the seed capital. We developed 30 vaccines in weeks and then uh, took it down to the top candidate and finished animal testing. And now we're in humans. And it's it's called a it's a synthetic peptide multitope vaccine. Uh, it's a it uses a platform that's been produced five billion vaccines so far. So it's a proven manufacturing platform that's been used for animal vaccinations for foot and mouth disease, and it's also been used in four human trials. And uh, we're excited about it. The performance in the preclinical testing have been the best in class we've seen. And we're in humans now, and we'll be reporting on on that. But one of the things I'm most excited is that it's the whole idea that we have these new sets of tools, vaccines, CRISPR technology, gene therapy, wind pathway manipulations, stem cells, synolytic medicines. We're beginning to truly understand how to um, how to bring the body back into regulation. Um, so do you mind if I ask you guys how old you are? Yeah, I'm 22, 21, 21. So you guys are at peak age, right? So the human body was never designed to live past age 30. Uh, we are in our peak physiological regulate regulations, like all the genes that need to be on in you are on all the genes that need to be off in you are off. But as you grow older, right, I'm 59 now. Um, hard to believe it. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm 28. Uh, and, uh, and anyway, so we'll get to that later, but, um, as we grow older, our body begins to dysregulate because if you think about it, a hundred thousand years ago, 
you typically would go into puberty age 13. You'd probably be pregnant by age 14. Um, and then by age 28, your baby was having a baby. And before we had abundant food, the worst thing you could do was steal food from your grandchildren's mouths. So you'd done, you had served your purpose. You'd procreated and raised your child to childbearing years. And when all we wanted to do was put forward our genes, um, that was great. And then the best thing you could do for your tribe was to die. <laughs> and so uh, we were, you know, average ages were late 20s, early 30s, and that held true for a while. And now the question is, how do we how do we use modern biotech to bring your body into an age reversal state? So I spend a lot of my time investing and focusing on companies in that arena. With the longevity methods you're talking about, what is the end game? Is the end game infinite life or improving life to a certain age? What do you see as the, the final phase there? So I think it's both. I think for the moment right now, it is how do you live a... Um, vibrant life to 100 or 120. In other words, how do you have the aesthetics, the cognition, the mobility that, you know, at 100 that you had at 50, right? Um, the, the phrase I use is making 100 years old and you 60. Um, but I'm going to try and make it 100, 100 years old and you 50. But we'll see about that if I switch that. Um, but now the question is, listen, if I make, if I'm vibrant at 100, that's 40 years from now right? Another 40 years. The amount of technology change we're going to see in 40 years is actually not fathomable. It's not understandable. It is, um, it is, you know, if we're doubling uh, every two years, 20 doublings uh, is a millionfold uh, improvement, right? So um, in fact, we're, the tech we're getting with AI and quantum computing and uh, uh, and CRISPR and gene therapy. Uh, I remember watching while I was at MIT, I remember watching a television show on long lived sea life that certain species of whales and turtles and Greenland sharks could live, you know, two, three, four, 500 years, maybe 700 years. And I said, if they can, why can't we? And I said, it's either a hardware problem or a software problem. And we're going to be able to address that. And I believe that. I think that it's living long enough to live forever. Whether people want to live forever, that's up to them. But I think we're about to enter the most extraordinary time ever in human history. It's like the analogy, you know, whatever we, whatever we become as humans in the next thousand years, 10,000 years, it's going to be these next, these next one or two decades that represents the moment in time where the human race moves off the planet irreversibly. It's happening now right? Not 50 years from now, not 30 years from now, it's the next two decades. And the last time this has happened is when, uh, you know, lungfish moved out of the oceans onto land. And so it's going to be an exciting future, both in the virtual world and in the physical world of space. So let's jump back to space for the last couple of questions. And I'll fire off one, Rupal, I know you have one you want to fire off. Um, so mine is about where you think we should go in space. Do you see us as, you know, Jeff Bezos has a very specific vision. Elon has a vision. Where do you think we should go once we're actually in space? So I have a set of laws called Peter's Laws. And everybody can just Google them. It's uh, like 30-odd laws. I Actually, the first law I ever created was in the ISU office where I was sitting with Todd Hawley. 
and he had a copy of uh, Murphy's Law on the on the wall. And he had it up there to piss me off. It was like, if anything can go wrong, it will. And I was like, you know, screw that. And I went and I had like a whiteboard and, and I wrote on it, if anything can go wrong, fix it to hell with Murphy. And I wrote Peter's Law on top. But my next Peter's Law was when given a choice, take both. So I don't, you know, so listen, Elon, and I've known Elon for 20, uh, 20 years now, um, back when he was just before starting SpaceX, he just sold uh, PayPal to eBay. And um, his passion has always been going to Mars. You know, he's very clear about wanting to get the human race to the Martian surface. Bezos, I've, I've known since, you know, the early days of, of SEDS, and I align more with Jeff's vision, which is let's go to the moon and then let's build what I guess we can we should call O'Neill colonies. Uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, who was a Princeton professor, the head of, uh, of the Space Studies Institute, uh, you know, asked the question, where's the best place for the human race to expand? Is it on planetary surfaces? And the idea was, no, you can create these large rotating space colonies that can house like a million people on the inside surface of a rotating cylinder build those out of lunar materials or asteroidal materials. You know, Dr. O'Neill's vision was originally lunar materials because we really didn't understand uh, the prevalence and the advantages of asteroidal materials, which I think are, are better material sources for this. But uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, Mars, we, the answer is going to be both. Um, but the, the most important thing is to create independent economies and to get independent uh, nation states and groups to go and colonize these. You know, we're about to replay what occurred 500 years ago as Columbus and Magellan uh, and, the, uh, you know, the other great explorers uh, set out to the new world. Um, and there'll be a multitude of missions and approaches. And I think we're going to be doing that with the versions of axes and, and shovels that we're going to bring with us are going to be robots and AIs and, uh, you know, incredible tools. Yeah. So going off of that, what sectors of space do you think are most likely to grow in the next like decade or two? So uh, the areas I'm excited about, um, I mean, obviously we have a resurgence of launch vehicles. That's pretty awesome, right? I, I started a launch vehicle company back in 1989. Uh, we won a large defense contract, but it never went any place. The vehicle never got built, uh, and it was just hard, super hard. Uh, we wanted to be able to launch 100 pounds for a million bucks, much more like companies like Astra are doing now and others, uh, but we were 30, 40 years ahead of our time in that regard. Um, and that will become more and more of a commodity, and that's awesome. I'm interested in space-to-space uh, -space communications. You know, uh, I think we should have uh, interplanetary Internet uh, providing high bandwidth laser between Moon, Earth, Mars and other locations where you just tap in and you've got gigabit connection speeds every place. Uh, you know, sort of like, you know, MCI used to be is you know, microwave communications Inc. that set up microwave towers between buildings and so forth. The same thing will happen in space. That's a cool thing. I'm super pumped still about asteroid mining. I think asteroids, uh, mostly for fuel, uh, hydrogen and oxygen uh, from carbonaceous chondrites, uh, but also eventually metallic chondrites, uh, platinum group metals and so forth are, are there. Um, manufacturing in space, 
which has been a com- conversation for 40 years, might finally see its due. Uh, so, I mean, those are are areas that I'm excited about. And obviously, eventually, just getting uh, humans out there. You know, it's really hard to start start a separate country today. You have to go and actually, there's no free territory to go and say, okay, I'm claiming this. And you know, we're going to start separate countries in, in uh, jurisdictions, geographies, volumes, and space. And we'll start them in virtual worlds. You know, the last book I wrote was is called uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think. It came out uh, in January of, of 2020. And there's a whole chapter on, uh, on our migration into space. And, you know, we're eight or nine billion people here on planet Earth. We'll cap out at nine and a half, uh, 10 billion, then we'll have a very rapid population decrease. And I think really the opportunity is for us to grow the human population outside of Earth and become a multi-planetary species. And during these times of rapid exploration and, um, and colonization is the most vibrant period of discovery ever. Going back to SEDS real quick, something I've always um, wondered about is the name itself. Like there's the exploration part of space and then the development. So what does that mean to you? Uh, Rupal, great question. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what the word should be. You know, uh, we talked about, you know, the utilization of space, the exploitation of space. And for me, it was, it became absolutely clear that the only way we were going to open up space was if there was an economic engine, um, if it wasn't just science. You know, just science gives us the basis in Antarctica and it's interesting and you do science. The development of space gives us the new world. It gives us where the new world is developing um, economies of, uh, you know, timber and railroads and housing and oil and tobacco and whatever the early economies were. You know, I, you know, as a engineer, I talk about wanting to create an, an economic exothermic reaction that I want in space for there to be uh, businesses start that generate more capital than the cost of running them. Because everything in space today has had to been propped up from, from the ground and they're mostly uh, uh, economically losing businesses. The only thing that's really succeeded has been communication satellites, but they don't involve humans. So how do we create opportunities for true development in space where uh, humans are part of the, of the solution and they are generating true wealth and therefore reinvestment and the costs are coming down and it's driving the development. So exploration, super cool, inspiring, but it's not enough. There has to be a, a development element as well. There's a lot more questions I'd like to ask, but we're running low on time. So I think yeah, we can do a part two of this sometime soon. Yeah, that'd be perfect. I think the one that's probably most important at this point is you have a lot of said students listening. What do you want to tell them, especially in this time? And is they're ready to you know, go through SEDS and go out into the world? What do you want them to know? That your future is what you create it to be. It's not what NASA says. It's not what Elon says. It's not what I say. It's what do you dream of? Understanding, you know, the laws of physics and what's physically possible, at least by the laws today, because they're changing and evolving all the time. What 
are you passionate about? What do you want to do? Because you can do anything. Your ability to have access to the world's information on Google, access to multi-gigabit connection speeds for free, the ability to go and tap into, you know, a thousand processor cores in AWS, the ability to, you know, to go and do research. What you have at your fingertips today is at least a thousand times more resources than I had when I was going through college, right? If not a million times more resources. And we don't think about that. So you're only limited by your imagination and your drive. Your job, your primary only job is to is to tap into a deep passion. What are you excited about? What do you want to do? Who do you want to be in the world? What is it that is like a dream that you want to do? Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to like build a rocket immediately or build a space colony immediately. And you need to create a path to that. Like when I started um, uh, International Space University with Todd and Bob, it started as we had a, uh, a three-day conference at MIT. And I was able to raise the $50,000 to have to hold a three-day conference. Uh, and that was the first step. And I went out to my friends who'd seen me. I went out to companies who knew me and I raised it $1,000 or $5,000 at a time. I borrowed the MIT campus from, from MIT to hold this conference. And that conference, we spent six months getting ready for it. And it was going to be a, a conference to study the idea of a university. And it became, with such momentum, it became a conference to found the university. So that was step one. It was achievable for me by me. And then step two was at the event, we said, okay, we're going to run a eight-week summer program and to test the idea. And we had to raise a million dollars to test that idea. And we did. And it worked great. And then we did a second summer program and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And then we ran a competition around the world to, uh, to fund a university. And so we staged it. So, But the vision, the end goal of where we wanted to go was clear. But we did a first achievable step. So what's your end goal? What's your dream? And then what could you do as a very first step today to get you on that path that is doable within your realm? It's not a stretch. It's something that your friends, your family, those you know can watch you pull that off and invest in you, right? Because in the very beginning, people invest in you. And if they see you succeed on it, they go, oh, great job. Let me, okay. And then you say, I'd like to do this next step. And they say, yeah, you did great in this first step. I'm going to back you on the next step, right? That's the way it works. So don't think you have to go from zero to infinity on the first step. It's like zero to one and then one to two and then two to four and then two to you know, four to eight. And pretty soon, you know, 10 steps later, you're a thousand steps ahead. That's a wonderful way to look at life. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter. I appreciate you so much coming on. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. All right. You have to promise me we're going to do part two. I promise. We'll make time for it. Believe me. Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. That was Peter Diamandis. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.